The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello, welcome to the Going Viral podcast. My name's Dr Vivian Miller and I have Professor Christine McCartney uh, here today. Christine, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Oh, hello, Vivian, and thank you very much for uh, you know, having me on today. My background is as a paediatrician and infectious disease specialist. But for more than 25 years, I have been a vaccine specialist, um, really decided I'd like to prevent disease uh, more than, than treat it. So my current role is as the director of Australia's National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. And uh, in that role, I'm a member of a number of advisory groups to government, uh, which you've probably heard about. But of course, I'm speaking here to you as an individual um, today. Well, I, I think all the GPs and, uh, and allied health professionals out there will be very reassured from what you've got to say, given your qualifications. <laughs> now, I suppose we should talk firstly about this rising uh, number of cases in New South Wales, for example, it's really you know, gone right up in recent weeks. And I'm sure that, that the same is happening around Australia, but perhaps in some states and territories a little bit more slowly. To what extent is this caused by Omicron? To what extent is this subclinical, you know, or asymptomatic cases that are being identified through work testing and other testing? Would you be able to comment on that? Yeah, thanks, Vivian. So Omicron emerged um, as a variant around um, a month or so ago, and as people know, in the southern part of Africa, it was first picked up in South Africa because they have very good genomic testing of the SARS-CoV-2, the, the coronavirus there. And at the stage that it was picked up, it was picked up because it actually on the PCR testing, there's one part of the targets in the PCR test that actually miss um, picking up this part of the virus. It doesn't mean it misses the diagnosis. So don't, don't um, believe that PCR doesn't pick it up. It does pick it up. But when they look at all the, what they call the primers, um, there's one particular part of the virus that the current primers don't pick up. So if you use that test, you can sort of get an indication that it's probably Omicron without doing the genetic, detailed genetic testing. Long story, but what it really meant was that when in other laboratories looked into cases that they've had around the world, they've actually seen one or two of these cases of Omicron appearing here in Australia. And of course, the time that we saw our first case coincided with the opening up of borders and the first cases of Omicron were seen um, in travellers that entered Australia around um, the time that it was diagnosed in Africa, but also um, these, these travellers had come from Southern Africa and, and had COVID. So, Omicron is now um, in hundreds of, well, there's only 200 countries around the world, but it's in, in dozens of countries around the world. I'm sure as I'm speaking, it's been detected in yet another country and it's at least around 80 countries now. Some countries, of course, don't have the level of genomic testing or even this particular type of um, PCR that can pick up this um, S gene target failure, it's called. But it, it, is, it is becoming dominant in many um, countries of the world, or it's at least predicted to become dominant. 
in parts of New South Wales. It's certainly dominant now in the outbreaks that have occurred in the Newcastle region, north of Sydney. And I think it's probably um, taking up an increasing number of cases of the total um, number of cases across New South Wales. You'll, you'll hear some states saying confirmed Omicron because it takes many days to do the genetic sequencing. Um, other case states might be saying suspected Omicron because of this type of PCR anomaly. But we do believe modelling suggests that it will become the dominant variant and over time it appears it, it may well replace Delta, although at the moment we're still seeing some Delta and some Omicron. Well, I guess if it replaces uh, Delta, that might not be a bad thing as long as it's not as severe as Delta. So uh, that's the $50 million question. That is the, the multi-million dollar, dollar question. It, it certainly appears more transmissible and in a short time frame um, when compared with Delta. Now, of course, we saw Delta being um, more transmissible than, than Alpha and the, the ancestral strain of the virus. But again, um, the reproductive, effective reproductive rate for Omicron is, is greater than for Delta. And that's partly also because it's escaping uh, to some extent the um, protection against infection that vaccines give us. So remember, you know, first off, vaccines protect against being infected. Second part of the pyramid is that they protect against symptomatic disease. And then third part of the pyramid is really protecting against severe disease and death. Now, all of your listeners know that when you get infected with COVID, most of the younger people don't don't um, have very severe disease and, and die. And in the early parts of the outbreak, including in South Africa and including here in Australia, we've seen some of the younger people get infected first. They're doing okay at this stage. Um, when we see older people get infected, there is inevitably a bit of a lag time then to seeing whether they progress typically in the second week to severe disease. And of course, you know, um, then develop any complications and the need for hospitalization. So at the moment, pre-Christmas, we're just trying to understand and we don't yet know if this virus causes less severe disease, the same severity or more severe disease. Early indications suggest it may cause less disease, but that's largely reliant on populations overseas who are different to our own population here in Australia. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist, and I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine-preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, mm. flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jam. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza mm -hmm. means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season 
and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2022, and it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. A COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab, a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. Well, I'm going to put my own two cents worth in here, completely unqualified compared to you. And I'm going to say that if you trust what news.com says today, which is that 36 people in New South Wales are in intensive care and 27 of them out of that 36 have not been vaccinated at all. Uh, that should give the other states and territories some reassurance that the booster system is working and the vaccination system is working. It, would that be a fair statement? In other words, if you're not vaccinated, you've got a problem. But if you are vaccinated, it's unlikely you'll end up in hospital. We certainly believe there's a good, every good reason for that to be the case. It certainly has been the case with every other variant of this. And we think it is likely to be the case with Omicron as well. So, you know, for any patients you have, it's really critical to emphasise to them, again, and I, and I expect providers have, that, getting, you know, getting vaccinated, getting your first two shots is really critical. The second part of that is that we do think this is a case for boosters, well and truly. We, we want people to have the boosters. We've already recommended those across the whole country for everyone age 18 years and above because of the con concept of, of slightly waning immunity over time. But now with Omicron, which does appear to escape the antibody response more so than, you know, it, it, Delta was the vaccines are performing very well against Delta. With Omicron, we think the boost is going to be important. So first dose is in if you're not yet vaccinated. Booster, if you're around four and, four and a half to five months since your second dose. So, okay. And then we have the government guidelines and then we have what probably a lot of doctors are wondering uh, behind the scenes. Uh, the government has suggested perhaps that we should all be getting boosters at five months, and yet we're being told at the same time, because Christmas is coming, we should all be having our boosters. And some of us aren't at the five-month mark. So where does that leave us, assuming we're not immunosuppressed? Because, of course, the very immunosuppressed are getting boosters at three months. And, of course, in the UK, they're getting boosters at three months for everyone. So why are we different to the UK? Why are these mixed messages being given? Yeah, so let's let's step it back a little bit. And it is, it is 
hard to keep up with the messaging. I do understand, and I think we have various commentators offering opinions too. But let's let's talk about what the guidelines say. I think, and so in Australia, around um, about two months ago now, there was a recommendation for booster doses to be given to um, people who'd received a primary course six months ago. So the interval was six months. And that was regardless of whether you'd received Astra or Pfizer, everyone over 18 was to be eligible for a booster. Now, shortly before that, there'd also been the recommendation that if you were immunocompromised, had an immunocompromised patient, severely immunocompromised, cancer chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, organ transplant, that you should give that patient not a booster, we, we're not calling it a booster, but a third dose. So just treat them like a patient who, instead of needing two doses from the get-go, needs three doses. And you can give that third dose as early as two months. Now, we will certainly need to boost those patients as well. And the exact timing of the booster for those patients will probably, I suspect, be aligned with what the same timing for the booster post-dose two is in those non-severely immunocompromised whole rest of the population. But so let's get back to where we were. So, so before Omicron, we were at six months. From six months onwards, have your booster. A short while ago, ATAGI recommended the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation recommended that um, the booster should be brought forward to five months because of the situation with Omicron and the suggestion um, that we would need, need earlier boosters to stimulate immunity because of the lower protection from the two doses. Uh, recently, um, on Friday, I think 17th of December, um, the pragmatic advice was made that if uh, you have a person who would otherwise be due for their booster at five months, say on Christmas Day or between Christmas and New Year, it's certainly fine to offer them the vaccine right now in the week before Christmas, um, anyone who would be otherwise due over the holidays. You can understand some people are very anxious to get their booster and, you know, a bit frustrated that they, they would have to wait um, over the holidays. In some other countries you, you mentioned, such as the UK, they're boosting from as early as three, three months after the second dose. On the flip side, other countries aren't even boosting at all yet. And other countries, again, are still boosting from six months. So the US, the Canada, we often benchmark ourselves against them. They have not, unless something's happened today that I haven't yet seen, brought forward their booster dose timing. So why the UK three months? Why some other countries six months or not yet at all? Why us four and a half to five months as we head into Christmas? Well, each country, remember, has their, their population that have had a different primary vaccine. Um, the UK have given quite a bit of AstraZeneca and Pfizer. They've done a study that suggests not much protection from AstraZeneca um, against infection, but we don't know what that means for the severe disease yet. But what's the other rest of the situation in the UK? They're heading into a very dark winter with lots of people in crowded conditions. They already had before Omicron emerged, an average of around 50,000 COVID cases a day, which is a lot of hospitalizations, stress on the testing, tracing and, and you know, healthcare system. Now they have around 76,000 notifications. So they are seeing more cases because of Omicron and because of the winter. And they are genuinely concerned about protecting their, their healthcare system and, and potentially those are older and more vulnerable. As you see more cases, you see more of the tip of the iceberg because some people will, you know, um, more people will be infected and, and potentially get severe disease. Where are we in Australia? Well, we've got a highly vaccinated population, including teens, which the UK don't have as many teens. 
we've got the summer, we've got the ability to space out, we've got a relatively low rate of infection compared to the UK that I just mentioned. So the, the situation currently has been a bit more stepwise in terms of saying, let's bring forward the booster because we've got it, there's no issues with supply, but let's not rush to bringing it forward to three or four months just yet until we have more information around severity. That information on severity we expect to come in the next few weeks. And that's going to be really critical to a decision to bring, whether to bring the boosters for, more forward than say four and a half, five months or to stick with where, where the settings are now. Oh, so complicated, but I think for us, uh, you know, yeah. I think for us, a lot of factors. And, and can I say that, um, you know, the various advisory committees to government, um, of which there are a number, but it's the ATAGI is one of the, you know, yeah. in respect to the vaccines, are meeting and re and talking about this almost every single day, reviewing data as it things. comes. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, know. I know. It's a lot of coffee. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, one of my questions is, I mean, firstly, I've always thought instinctively doctors should probably on the first line, you know, first front line doctors, uh, specifically GPs, hospital doctors, they should probably have their boosters a little bit earlier than five months. So it was always my feeling because, you know, I mean, that's where we're at risk. But when we do have our boosters, it's probably going to be Pfizer for us. I mean, some of us might have Moderna, but a lot of us will have had Pfizer already. What, what happens in terms of side effects with the booster? Because I've had some patients tell me it was horrendous, <laughs> far worse than the second, which was far worse than the first. My first was horrendous, but my second was okay. So I don't know where I'm going to go with the third. Can you enlighten me? Well, look, can I just suggest anyone who's, you know, got their browser in front of them, just type in Ausvax Safety, A-U-S-V-A-X safety.org.au. So this I'm is, and I'm totally biased because... I'm not worried about the safety. I'm not worried about the safety. I'm just worried about being sick at Christmas because I've got to do so it all. You're worried about the side effects. Yes. So jump on. Just the ordinary the side, side effects. effects. <laughs> the ordinary. No, no, this is the ordinary side effect. So what, what Ausvax Safety does is it surveys, it surveys, five million um, doses uh, in people already of, of COVID-19 vaccines. And this SMS survey goes out um, either from, from SmartVax or VaxTracker, the two tools, and the patients respond exactly what happened to them. So there's tens of thousands of responses for the booster dose. And we do know that the side effects that you're describing are a little bit more common when you see Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer. Um, probably around the same when you see AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca, Pfizer. So I'm talking about here the, you know, getting start, starting off with either Pfizer or Astra, AstraZeneca and then following up with a Pfizer booster. And um, we do see a slightly higher rate of reactivity. But again, it's those the side effects you expect, the headache, the, the you know, the muscle pain, the fatigue, um, generally over within two to two to three days yeah. and, you know, rest a bit, take, take some fluids and, and maybe have a yeah. Panadol. Um, we we know that uh, you know this is not associated with any risk of longer term no, side well effects. Not. If you've had COVID like I have, I tell you, you want the booster anyway. <laughs> yes, I tell well, you, I don't well, want to you, go through you that particularly again. Particularly, the COVID the COVID that you had probably was you know if if you got it in the UK twelve months ago, wherever you got it, no, almost March certainly said the original yeah. strain. Yeah, exactly, the ancestral strain. So even what's important from the South African data, for example, that we know about Omicron is that um, it's firstly, it's what you live through gives you what we call 
cross protection or heterotypic protection. So we're seeing that if you've had an infection, you've had a you know a vaccine, and then you're going to meet Omicron, you, you actually may have slightly better protection because you've had both a vaccine that was aimed against the original strain, you've had a strain of virus, you've had, you know, um, your immune system has been turned on in a couple of different ways. One good thing about it. But um, you don't want 100% rely on that either. It's good to get your booster because people are being reinfected who were infected in the past. They're being infected now with Omicron. And, um, you know, the best bang for your buck is to really have, put your immune system through the paces, get it stimulated in a few different ways. That's actually really really good for the longer term protection and the building the whole of population immunity you know like I Rome wasn't built in a day we know Rome wasn't built in a day and a totally you know responsive robust durable immune response certainly wasn't built in a day as well we need that sort of exposure you know potentially a bit of reinfection dare I say it without the severe disease um, and and vaccine boost. Yeah, we're certainly going to get reinfection for the rest of our lives off and on, aren't we? Which will hopefully be low. Well, this is a common cold virus. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a common cold virus. So so that in it in itself, if we just get a few viral particles in the nose that makes us sniff and sniffle, then we certainly wouldn't be having a pandemic. That's where we want to get to now, yeah. living with yeah. common cold virus. Yeah. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccinations protect our seniors. The fatality rate for pertussis aged over 50 is higher than for one to five-year-old children. Despite this threat, pertussis vaccination coverage in over 65s is unknown. This contrasts with influenza vaccination at 80%, pneumococcal vaccination at 40% and shingles vaccination at 25% coverage. As with all adults, people over 65 should get pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Protect against pertussis. Okay, so children, your area of expertise and special interest, the vaccines for children are around the corner. Can you just run us through what they're suggesting for that at this stage? Yeah, so um, look, I, I like old people as well as children. Oh, but, that's uh, sweet. Definitely, uh, <laughs> that's lovely. And <laughs> animals, I'm sure. <laughs> so look, uh, you know, your listeners would be knowledgeable that Pfizer's now been registered for the age group of 5 to 11. So really, we've got um, Pfizer registered in five years and above. But importantly, it's a different dose for 5 to 11-year-olds than it is for 12 plus. And that means a different vial. It's a different amount of diluent that you put into the vial, a different strength. They get 0.2 mLs, 5 to 11-year-olds, and that is 10 micrograms, not 30 micrograms, which is the dose given um, in the 12 years plus. So that program for five to 11 year olds with Pfizer is due to start around the 10th of January. And that is because the new vials are on the way into the country right now. They all need to be batch tested, of course, and, and strictly um, reviewed by the TGA and then distributed out to the states and territories. And in, in, the, in the interim, you know, I'm, I trust that I'm um, uh, all the immunisation providers are familiarising themselves with the protocol for using the new paediatric orange cap vials and, and they'll be ready to go um, in early January. Again, I hope um, aiming to vaccinate kiddies, um, young, young children, uh, 5 to 11, who have underlying conditions, really 
hopefully parents, encouraging parents of, of children in that category to bring them in first and foremost, including through the paediatric hospitals, but of course also, um, you know, starting to get kids uh, with the two-dose schedule. Um, it's recommended to be eight weeks apart for the two-dose schedule, and I can mention why in a second, but having first dose on board, hopefully before, you know, school goes back if possible. Um, if not, it's not necessarily a big deal, but um, we know it is overall um, the benefit to children, you know, outweigh any potential harms from the vaccine. Moderna, is Moderna available for children as well? So Moderna is being considered for registration in Europe at the moment and in Australia for not five to 11-year-olds, but six to 11-year-olds, would you believe it? And they're also put forward a lower dose. Um, it's half the dose of um, what is currently being used for the, for the primary two-dose schedule in 12 years plus, which is 100 micrograms. They're having a dose of 50 micrograms evaluated, which is coincidentally also the same dose as what we give for the booster vaccine for Moderna, which is now registered as a booster. Um, and of course, Moderna is, you know, um, can be used uh, straight out of the vial. It's pre-diluted. But important to note, it's not yet registered in the age group of, of 6 to 11 years. Is there any difference between uh, Moderna and Pfizer uh, compared, you know, compared to each other in terms of immunity for older children, teenagers and adults? We haven't seen all of the Omicron data yet. So I'm, I, I'll just reserve any comment on that just at the moment. We do know across the board that um, both of these vaccines, are, they're based off, they code for a spike protein, which is the same spike protein as the original strain of, of the coronavirus. So when you then measure the antibodies that you get after being vaccinated with either Moderna or Pfizer, those antibodies don't neutralise Omicron as well. And that's a general observation. It's the same for AstraZeneca. It's the same for the other spike protein vaccines because they've been essentially derived to protect against predominantly the first strain. They still do well against Delta, but they look like they're doing less well against Omicron. So certainly in, in, in that regard, um, there's not a big difference between them. There's a couple of things we've seen with Moderna. It actually um, does cause a, a, a higher rate of you know, lymphadenopathy swelling under the arm, not, not terribly different. Um, the general side effect profile is around the same. Um, and both vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, can rarely cause myocarditis or pericarditis, which is an inflammation of the muscle of the heart or the lining of the, the heart. It does appear that this is slightly higher risk in Moderna as compared with Pfizer. There's now data out of Nordic countries and Canada, as well as the US, that suggests that the rate of myocarditis is higher after Moderna compared with Pfizer. Mm. Still mild, you know, in both cases and still relatively rare in both cases. But it is important to tell, particularly I'd say your teenage or young adult male patient this because the difference is mainly and the risk is mainly in younger males. Mm. And they they may wish to choose, you know, Pfizer over Moderna based on that or they may just be happy to go with Moderna. The thing about the spacing is really interesting. So why Batagi suggested a spacing of eight weeks? It's partly because when we space vaccines, we tend to get a better immune response if you could space them out a little bit. For example, GPs know very well yeah. and practice nurses that we space out the infant vaccines, two, four, yeah. six months. That's two months. Mm. Um, we're suggesting two months for Pfizer in the six, five to 11-year-olds because it's probably 
quite good for an immune response, but also there's a suggestion from data from Canada that it could slightly offset any risk of myocarditis. It could be less if you space out those vaccine doses. Not definitive. And what I would say about that for those in Omicron states or where there is a significant outbreak, you might still be better on balance to give that dose at three weeks, not eight weeks, once we start vaccinating children, because you know, you don't want to necessarily leave them exposed if, the, mm. if you're really in a high incidence area. Lots so to think about, I know. But, um, yeah. Well, actually, yes. I was just thinking about one thing then. <laughs> Is the risk of uh, myocarditis in uh, 5 to 11-year-olds the same as the risk in adolescents, assuming you're male? Or is it great, less? great question. Sorry. So um, we think it's less. We think theoretically it's going to be less because overall myocarditis from any cause is very unusual in, in 5 to 11-year-olds. It's mm. the lowest rate That's what I of um, getting myocarditis yeah, from any cause. Mm. And then what we've seen now, and it's really great, we've just received this data in some overnight presentations from the United States Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices, through their VAERS monitoring system, they've had eight confirmed myocarditis cases reported in a total of 7.6 million doses given out to five to 11-year-olds. So just kind of one in a doesn't, million. Doesn't now, very much, yeah. That's rare. We have to wait and see more second doses given. You know, it could be slightly higher than that because they were first doses and second doses mixed. But again, we think it's going to be rare even more rare than in teens to see myocarditis in 5 to 11-year-olds monitoring closely at this stage. Mm. And I think there was a talk of a third uh, vaccine as well for children, uh, especially those 2 to 5. So um, just as a final question, anything on the horizon with the 2 to 5-year-olds? And Pfizer flag um, that they believe that two doses of vaccine at a lower dose. So, so remember, we've We've gone 10 micrograms, a third of the dose in 5 to 11-year-olds as compared to adults. In the 2 to 4-year-olds, they studied 3 micrograms, so a tenth of the dose compared to adults. Right? So, you know, it, it's all based on a lot of good science, but still you have to do the studies. Very, very important to do these studies very well. And, and those 2, 3-microgram doses, they've signaled that they don't think that that's going to be enough. For protection and they're seeking to add a third dose into the schedule at that three microgram level but it, this is data that is only just or commentary that's only just emerging from the company we haven't seen the data yet mm. and of course we are familiar with three dose vaccine schedules in other in other contexts so um really again important to hear that you know know that each time a dose is chosen we're seeking that sweet spot whereby the the vaccine offers an the best protection get balanced against you know very acceptable side effect profile and you know there, there's a lot of dose ranging studies done but this is where the company is signaling they might need three doses in two to four year olds for Pfizer early days let's wait and see how that looks. Well, Professor Christine McCartney, it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you and, and your knowledge is boundless. <laughs> so thank you very, very much for today's uh, Going Viral podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Vivian. I think the virus is pretty sort of boundless at the moment too. But <laughs> can I say, um, you know, it, it, we, we're in a race, you know, it's a mind race against this virus. And, and most importantly, can I just give a big shout out to every single vaccine provider out there, everyone who's yes. delivering, yes. um, talking to their patients, you know, stepping them through what is 
you know, inevitably needing to be changing advice because of the way the virus changes. But just keep up the great work, everyone. You're all awesome. And um, most importantly, have a safe, um, you know, Christmas and New Year. Thank you so much. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.